Good evening. Get all my technology set it up set up here and should all be able to hear me. There we go. Now we're cooking with the, the gas. So we are having a traditional lesson tonight. I told Jeff that. I just like getting down here, so if I gotta get in your face, I can a little bit easier, you know. It makes me feel a little bit closer. Um, usually, if we do a traditional or a class sort of session, it's sort of tied to what we've been talking about. This is a little different. It's a little bit of a, a one-off. Because I was thinking about a handful of things that I just wanted to address. And uh, as we get started, we'll make a couple different points. And um, also, bear with me. I'm going to try and kind of keep an eye on the clock. I'm usually, I don't know if I told you guys this, but I usually write out all my sermons because I'm a little ADD. Sometimes I spend too much time on stuff that's not relevant. I'm going from an outline, so we're working without uh, a safety net tonight. So it could be really short, it could be really long. Let's hold on and find out together. So, with all that being said, a couple of years ago, I think it was, part of my college uh, studies and stuff like that, I took a comparative Christian tradition class, and I believe that was at Heritage. Uh, it was taught by a very uh, smart professor, great member of the Brotherhood there. And one of the things I loved about it was that we went into uh, the Methodist churches, Lutheran churches, the history of the Catholic Church, the history of the Protestant Reformation, all of these different churches that bear the name Christian or movements or denominations or whatever we want to call them. And we talked about sort of the identifying markers of many of those movements. We talked about, you know, why do they think about what they, what is the reason for this? What is the, and what it did is it allowed me to look at the church and allowed me to look at the churches of Christ and say, you know, these are the things I've come to really appreciate that sort of, I would say, distinguish us from other congregations, other denominations, other movements, whatever we want to call them. Sometimes I'll use the, the idea of the banner of Christendom, all those who would call themselves Christians. And one of the things that I would say I, I take the most pride in on what we believe, if you listed all the things that we believe that I would say not everybody who bears the name Christian does, is that we, absolutely everything we do, we do according to the scriptures. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Hey, all right, that actually worked. But everything we do, we do according to the scriptures. It's not because somebody, uh, some history of some father, some bishop. It's not because of some creed. It's not because of some statement of faith. And, and, and don't misunderstand me. There are many statements of faith out there by various churches that I believe. In fact, I know of many churches of Christ that have come to putting statements of belief on their website or on their bulletin or things like that. And I agree with many of those statements of faith. One of them, for example, would be we believe that in order to be a Christian, you have to, for example, repent here, confess, baptize, and, and live faithfully. And sometimes they'll put that on the bulletin. Another one would be that, you know, we worship in this manner. We believe in God the Father, the Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Trinity. And they have these different statements of belief. And they're useful. But what I like about our, of the church is that we see that those are useful, but they're never nobody's statement of faith. Nobody's statement or positioning a writing. No, no writing of man will ever take supremacy over what we believe comes from God. All right, we're cooking with gas tonight. Thank you, Brother Howell. And so while men might say things I agree with, they might write things I agree with, they might uh, publish things that we would say, that's true, we like that, we, we agree with that, we always bring it back and subject to the Word of God. And so uh, if you don't know... The Churches of Christ come from the Restoration Movement. It's actually started not too far from this part of the country. Uh, some hundred, some odd years ago, I think about 150. And it started with the idea with these group of Christians. Some came from Presbyterian background. Some came from a Methodist background. Some came from a Lutheran background. And they said, well, what if we just dispensed with all these titles and these names, and we went back to what we all believe in, which is the Word. 
And so they dispensed with the Westminster Confession. They dispensed with this uh, confession of faith. They, they got rid of some of these certain creeds that had sort of dominated the theological discussions at the time. And they were back and they said, we believe in the scriptures. And so we have certain scriptures that I would say are, are, are sort of flagships for us, that are, that are prominent for what we believe. One of them, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so... When you look at what we do or what we practice, and we talk to people about becoming members of the church, we talk about these kind of issues. For example, one of them is communion. Um, something that makes us a little bit distinct from many other congregations out there is that some take communion as little as once a year, as little as once a month. And, and you might have experienced this if you're talking to somebody about it. In fact, I, I have multiple times. I'll talk to, I've talked to a friend of mine or some family members of mine who, come to a, who, who go to a different kind of church, I would say. And we talk about communion. They say, well, why do you guys do it, you know, once a month? And they say, well, we, we feel like it just means more when we do it that way. Or they would say, you know, we feel like we, we do it on Easter, we do it on Christmas, or we do it a few times a year. And, and we feel like it just it means more when we do that. And I said, well, that's really good. But how do you handle what the Bible says about that? Because we do it this way. Why? Because the, well, the Bible says on the first day of the week they broke bread together. And so that's, that's why we do what we do. Why do we meet on the first day of the week? Same thing, Right. And so if you're in your discussions with somebody or you're in a conversation with somebody and you're, maybe they're new to what we teach and you're talking to them and they, and they come to you and say, well, you know, every church I've been a part of, well, they had an organ or they had a piano or they had a – we would go to them and say, well, well, this is why we do what we do. And we would look at maybe, for example, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we could get off into the weeds about the general and the specific commands and, and this and that if we wanted to really dive on the issue of instrumental music. That's really not my focus tonight. But I want us to agree and affirm and acknowledge that we all believe that you know, when we're talking to somebody who's maybe new to the church or, or even on the fringes, I would say, and they say, well, why do you do what you do? We always go back and we say, well, this is what the Bible says on this topic. And we have that discussion. It doesn't matter what places you've been to before. It doesn't matter where you've worshipped before. It doesn't matter what you've done your whole life. If the Bible is an example for something, that is the example that we will follow. Luke eleven twenty eight says, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So matter, no matter what we've done or what we've heard, before, before anything else, all we do, we do according to the word. With all that in mind, I'll read from you. This is from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, again, we were just talking about communion, first day of the week, Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. Wait, hold on. Maybe not so much. The literal all the time. I, in fact, I remember, I think it was probably about a year ago. It was pretty early when we had started doing Sunday nights. I think somebody flipped the lights on me. They must not have heard of Acts 20, verse 7. Paul preached till midnight. I think that's when you guys got to cut me off, right? I get till midnight. It's the curfew. I'm just kidding. That part was just a joke. I do want to go to another verse, though. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life in the holy city which are described in this scroll. And so Revelation 18 and 19, it talks about this idea that you shall not add to nor take away. Jesus uses similar language when he talks about binding and loosing, that you shall not bound what is not bound, you shall not loose what has not been loosed. 
And so we believe that we, we do what the Bible says, and on other things we acknowledge that there is some room for differences of what I would say, opinion. I think a very strong phrase I heard that is often associated with the churches of Christ. It's not itself in the Bible, but it is a biblical principle. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we are silent where the Bible is silent. I think something that distinguishes us from, from other churches is, is you might go down the road to another church of Christ, and they're going to believe in God the Father, Christ the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're going to believe in baptism for the remission of sins, but they might do Sunday nights differently than us. They might do Wednesday nights differently than us. You might find little diversity because we have our sort of church structure, they have theirs, and there's not a denominational body top down that says, no, 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 this is what all the churches must look like. You must all agree on every single thing. And like one of the things I appreciated in that, in that comparative Christian traditions class was that in the church organization as laid out in Scripture, there is a, a hierarchy. And above all things is, is Christ, well, number one, but then subject to Christ, our shepherds, our elders, and then the members are subjected to the shepherds, our elders. And so that is, that is church leadership. That's where it stops. There's not somebody over the elders. It's over us and Bumpus Mills and Eliel. There's not somebody off all the ones in western Tennessee who says you all have to think like this, agree like this, and, and do this thing. And when studying this comparative, comparative Christian traditions movements class, I appreciate this idea of church autonomy. Autonomy, but subject to the word of God. That we say as long as we agree and it is in line with what God says, nobody can come in and tell us we've got to start practicing something different. Nobody can come in and tell us that we have to, And when you study comparative Christian tradition, what was very interesting to me is this, was, this, this denominational structure was often how apostasy spread. It was often how false teaching said. Somebody at the top says, you know what, we, we think we really don't need to be doing this baptism thing anymore. I know we allowed it in certain cases. And we, we did, but, you know, it's, it's not really all that essential. So what happens? Well, all of those churches that followed, say Anglican or what have you, then they all started following that teaching. And so this, this idea of autonomy but subject to the word of God allows us to, this phrase that I said was associated with, speak where the Bible speaks but silent where the Bible is silent. And so... What that means is that sometimes we will disagree on issues where the Bible does not speak. But how does the word instruct us in handling conflict? We'll look a little bit at Matthew 18. But I'll tell you what, I actually want to start with Philippians. If you have your Bible, turn to Philippians 4. <coughs> Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 is notable for a handful of things. One of them is this odd, it, it seems odd, it seems almost out of place. But this side note, this conflict that Paul addresses. Paul's letters are known for, being, for ending. As he gets to the end of all his letters, he starts referencing little specific needs in the church, specific people who helped him, uh, specific things that are going on. In one letter he says, tell so-and-so to keep the books and bring me my coat. Little personal notes that kind of flesh out Paul. Follow this one in Philippians 4, verse 2. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I want to talk a little bit about church conflict. Because I think as Christians, we're, we're hardwired to care about stuff. We were reading Ecclesiastes in our Bible study this Sunday morning, and at one point I kind of jokingly said, reading from Ecclesiastes, that the, the author was saying that almost nothing matters. And Wilton very timely corrected me. He said, well, hold on, some things matter. 
And he started talking about faith and acts of love and acts of uh, lifting other people up. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, Wilton, but don't spoil the ending. I've got to get there yet. But, but he said, well, some things matter. We're not Christians. are not nihilists. We don't say nothing in this earth matters. In fact, Jesus would tell us, no, some things on this earth matter very, very greatly, very much. And so as Christians, I think we're hardwired to, to care. And we see Jesus cared very deeply about the, the, the mourning and the struggles of other people. He cared about the hunger of other people. He cared about the needs of other people. But he also cared very deeply about the gospel. And so I believe as Christians, we're, we're, we're hardwired to care because it, it's in what we believe. It, it's rooted in sort of our spiritual DNA. That we can't just say, well, nothing matters. We, we care. And as you know, those of you who have families or friends or relationships or anybody you care about... You fight with the people you care about more than the people you don't care about. I don't know about you, but I've never fought with some fool with the line at Walmart the way I have my wife and my best friend. I grew up driving in the city of Dallas. There's all sorts of people I didn't like on the roadways and the way they did things, but I just don't really care about them. So you, so you fight a little bit harder with the people you care about. I say this passage is interesting because typically when Paul talks about something that's negative that's going on in the church, he, he refers to them more vaguely. He, he praises the people specifically by name, then he'll refer to groups or sects or, or divisional little circles, and he'll sort of refer to them vaguely. But he refers to Euodia and Sycate by name here. And he says, I entreat them to agree in the Lord. And what's funny is he doesn't tell us what they were fighting about. He doesn't say, uh, I want one of you to give up and tell the other one they're right, or I want the other to give up and tell the other one they're right. He says, I, I urge you to agree in the Lord. And he kind of mentions why I think, I think this is his, he's, he, that verse 3 and verse 4 tell us his reasoning why. He says, I ask you also, speaking to the rest of the church, true companion, help these women, true yoke fellows, co-workers, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together. And so a biblical church, believe it or not, is not a church that doesn't fight. <laughs> We're looking at Philippians 4, we could say a biblical church is a church that does fight, actually. But I would say a biblical church is one that fights and deals with conflict the way that the Bible deals with it. And Paul mentions, he says, you have to remember, he sort of entreats these women, he said, remember that they are co-workers in the gospel. Again. He said, you're co-laborers. He said, you have the same goal, you, you share the same end goal. He says, you've labored side by side with me. In Philippians, he doesn't really just give us an answer to their conflict. He doesn't even name their conflict at all. He just kind of tells us, this, this is the attitude I want you to have when you deal with conflict. And I think if we look at the Bible, that is probably the predominant takeaway we will have for how the church should deal with conflict. Issues of doctrine, obviously, we can say, well, the Bible makes this very clear. You know, we have to do it this way. And other ways aren't really allowed if it's specified in the Bible. But when it comes to matters of subjectivity, it comes to matters of opinion, it comes to matters of, of personal preference or disagreements within just personal conflicts within ourselves, he does instruct us in our attitudes on how we should conflict with one another. I heard one time, uh, I wasn't present for this, but somebody told me one time in a, in a men's meeting at their church that they were discussing something and somebody stood up and said, well, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard. I was kind of shocked and appalled that that kind of language would be used about the work of the church. We, we, we resort to name calling and, and that sort of language and talking about the work of the gospel, of the church. 
And so while the Bible doesn't always tell us exactly what the answer to our conflict is, it tells us exactly the attitude by which we should handle conflict. So let's jump over to Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is probably the the foremost verse you know about dealing with conflict. And we'll make some uh, clarifications, and I don't want to say exceptions, but maybe conditions to this rule. But we'll, we'll start by just reading it. We've heard it before. We'll start with Matthew 18, beginning in verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So, I say this because I think if we're going to talk about conflict in the church, we have to talk about probably the most popular verse used on conflict. But I do want to give somewhat of a condition in the sense that if you notice the very first line says, if your brother sins against you. This passage is specifically talking about how the church should deal with unrepentant sin. And I think it's a perfect model for that. And so I think there are principles we can draw from this in dealing with personal conflict. We have to be careful that the command itself is specifically against dealing with personal sin. It's not saying if someone wants chairs and someone wants pews that you need to hash it out in front of the whole church. But I do think there are principles from this passage that we can apply to other sort of fringe, extraneous, personal conflicts in the church. The first one would be right there in that first verse that he says, if the, the first time you confront somebody, the first time you see an issue with somebody, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. There's wisdom in that. And then he says a second time, like if he doesn't listen, if this person rejecting you, if they don't want to hear you, go and take them with somebody else. And I think this is a, an even stronger example because I've, I've had people come to me and talk about situations. What about a, a situation of abuse or where someone feels bullied by someone in the church? Someone feels like, like they're being kind of personally attacked by somebody on a repeated basis. And I think, thankfully, we're small enough in number that we avoid certain conflicts, but we're small enough in number that those conflicts are elevated. <laughs> the beauty of a small town. But when you feel personally attacked, you, you might not want to go confront that person one-on-one. You don't feel like it's going to go well. Well, that's where I think the second step comes in. Go and take somebody with you. And so I think there are principles we can apply from this. Flip over to Matthew 7. We're going to look at a number, a great number of verses tonight. So we'll be jumping around. Matthew 7, we studied this in extensive length, not all that long ago, but we'll read it again. Matthew 7, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think this applies to conflict because I think anytime we're in a conversation with somebody or we're in a disagreement with somebody or we're not coming to a, a, a sort of a common ground, is you, at some point you need to step away and look at me and say, okay, what, what can I be doing differently here? What can I mentally, how can I approach this in a way that might be more helpful? 
Am I doing everything I can to make this better, or am I just angry that it's not the way I want it? And so Jesus says we ought to use reflection in pronouncing judgment, and I think reflection is an important principle in personal conflict. We don't have to turn there, but Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Another one, Proverbs 6.16, There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. One who sows discord is one of the six things the Lord hates. Now look at Proverbs 6.16. And I look at Ephesians. Or even I'll include this one, Titus 3.2. Speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling. To be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. I look at these verses and I look at Jesus' commands from Matthew 18. I think the Matthew 18 way to handle something with somebody is say, you know what, I, I don't like the way this, you did this. I, I was upset by the, the, the comments you made in the parking lot the other day that, that bothered me, and so I just want to tell you that I, I just love how you handled that. Let me tell you the Proverbs 6.16 way to handle it. That's where I go home and I call my friend, did you hear what, someone, did you hear what Joe said to me in that meeting? That was awful. I can't believe that. And I heard he and Renee are fighting too. Isn't that terrible? I bet, you know what? I bet he's just angry because of his situation at home. Beep, 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 beep. Let me call the next person in my phone. But did you hear about so-and-so? They were really mean to me at church. Have they ever been mean to you? That's what I was asking. I was wondering if they've ever been mean to you too. There are six things the Lord hates. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked fans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord... Among brothers. First Timothy 5.13, and speaking of different groups in the church, this is where we get his comments on widows, that the young sh- younger should learn from the older, that the young men should learn from the older men. In his uh, longer section in 1 Timothy 5.13, he says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. There's a Christian way to handle conflict. It's not with quarreling. It's not with being a busybody. It's not with intentionally sowing discord. Another principle from Matthew 5.24. If you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and alter your gift. Jesus is preaching in Matthew 5. He says, this is how I want you to reconcile conflict with one another. If you're literally coming down the aisle in the synagogue, making your way to worship, and you remember that you have a problem with somebody, go deal with that first. Go deal with that first. I think the problem, we all agreed when we started, we used the Bible, right? That's the template for how we handle conflict. That's the end-all, be-all. That is our foundation for doctrine. What I don't see anywhere in those passages we read is what I would say is the pretty standard southern country way of dealing with problems. I can say that because I grew up in the south end of the country, so you can't get mad at me. And that's where I tell my friend, and I tell my aunt, and I tell their cousin, or I tell their brother that I work with, or I tell their wife where she works, and I tell everybody, well, I just don't want to talk to them. They just might be really upset at me. 
Well, I don't want them to get offended. You know, I don't, I don't want to be rude, so I'll just tell half the neighborhood and then I might say something to them. Would you believe I've seen this play out with foolish things like somebody's casserole dish going missing? I've seen this play out with rumors of serious things like issues of adultery, guys. Where a guy finds out what's going on with his wife and then his friend's like, oh yeah, half the, half the town already knew that. Well, no one to tell you. We didn't want you to be upset. Oh, thanks. Not upset at all now. You've really done me a favor, buddy. Doesn't say first go tell somebody else. Doesn't say go stew about it for a couple weeks and call all your friends, see if anybody else noticed the problem you noticed. So do it without grumbling. Do it without being a gossip, without being a busybody, without sowing discord. And if we go back to Matthew 7, which I think is the last passage I sort of turned to, you do it with recognition that maybe, just maybe, we're both contributing a little bit of something to the conflict here. So we deal with conflict with reflection. <clears throat> With honesty. Hebrews 13, 17. Y'all know if I had time to speak on a Sunday night, I was leave the elders in a roundabout way. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Might be guessing. Might also be reading some people's minds. I think one of the reasons we might not have elders is because people don't want to be grieved about everybody else's problems. They don't want to have to tell 17 people a week, hey, why don't you go talk to the person yourself? Hey, why don't you, have you tried talking to them first? Because I'll tell you what, I know elders at church and they say the number one thing they deal with is telling people to go obey Matthew 18. Say, so, you know, that, that's really great, uh, uh, Sister Sharon, but why don't you go talk to Brother So-and-so about it first? Nobody wants to be grieved by all of the issues that you're not willing to talk to people about. I heard a quiet amen. I heard that. Philippians 2.14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. You may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. You know, some commentators think Paul wrote all of Philippians just to deal with Yodia and Synecdoche at the end. And so he talks about how we should live and talks about pursuing all things and the strength of God through all things. And he talks about not grumbling and not complaining, but instead being a light to the world. Just so he can get to those people in Philippians 4. I don't think Yodia and Synecdoche would have agreed if Paul addressed the letter to Yodia and Synecdoche. He says, to the Philippian church. Here are some ways I want you to act. I know, by the way, I really hope those two women can figure it out. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. He's saying people are watching how you deal with conflict in the church. We might not know it, we might not know what it's like, but he says people are watching how you're going to deal with conflict in the church. And I'll tell you, the other day I was having, it was probably like two months ago now, it's been a long, long but anyway, uh, the other day I was having lunch with, with Dustin, who is the new preacher at LBL, and Phil. Phil did a really nice thing. He invited both of us to lunch, trying to get us to sit down, just meet him and, and t chat with him. And at one point in our lunch, uh, Dustin was asking, Phil was kind of talking just about the history of churches in the area. Dustin was asking, he, he had freshly come to our area from a Bible school in Missouri, whose name escapes me at the moment. 
He said, so what, what's the story? You know, what, what's the deal? He said, I noticed as I was going along here, there's kind of a lot of churches for a small town. And I chuckled quietly under my breath because I've been here a whole year, so I know how things go now, right? I'm, just, I'm now the second most seasoned preacher in the county. I don't know if you've known that. But I kind of chuckled, and Phil kind of chuckled. He sat back and said, well, a long time ago, there was a church split. And he started getting into it. But how he said, you know what? I don't even want to tell you. If they want to tell you, they'll tell you. He said, I just don't want to talk about it, to be honest with you. And I started laughing, which, by the way, is the worst thing to do when someone starts talking to you about why their church split. But I'm laughing because I've been told the story about why the church is split, and I think it's kind of funny. Well, that's because it was however many years ago, and I'm not talking to any of the people who were there. I don't imagine a lot of people I love and care about that probably don't think that was too funny. I said this morning... We were talking about idol worship in a uh, passage we were looking at, Elijah, 1 Kings 18. And that passage where it says the, the worshipers, they danced and raved and all these insane things, cutting themselves so they bled. It says, you know, all idol worship looks silly when it's not your idol. It's not the thing you're stuck in. I think all church splits look kind of silly when it's not your church. Your congregation, your family going through it. I say family because Jesus makes it very clear, and I've talked about this recently enough that I won't rehash it too much. But that we are a spiritual family. And if we believe that, leaving, let alone a church, a full-on church split, but leaving should feel like a divorce. I don't love... Hold on. I'm going to be really careful how I say this. I love almost everything about my wife. But I ain't going to leave her if she runs the dishwasher too long one night. You know why? Because that's stupid. And I'm going to hope she ain't going to leave me if I leave the light on in the yard or I spend too much money on stuff in my truck. Or I don't wash the cars as often. Or I don't get the oil changed quick enough for the light to come on. Keep the air in the tires. Sorry, I should have started talking about stuff I don't do. That was my bad. I hope when we talk, we hear what Jesus says about being a spiritual family, like I hope that we don't just... Because I'll tell you what, when it comes to conflicts, particularly conflicts of opinion, I've said many times churches don't split over issues of doctrine, they split over issues of opinion. And that's true. Occasionally, because here's what happens when a church has a doctrinal issue in my experience. A few people leave, and then a few Sundays later a few more people leave, and then what happens is over about ten years the church has made changes and changes and changes and changes, and they've probably gone through three or four different ministers where the staff has just completely turned over, and then all of a sudden you get up there and you look around and you realize, man, all the people who used to be here are not here that's typically what happens in a doctoral shift. I know of one instance where that was not how it went at all, and it was one Sunday. I'll tell you about that story another time. But issues of opinion, those will split a church overnight. Because I don't think we believe Jesus when he talks about being a spiritual family. If we would, we wouldn't just say things like, well, if they don't fix that, I'm going to leave. I'm going to go somewhere else. You know what? There's three other churches in this county. If they don't start doing what I like, I can just go anywhere else. Well, yeah, you could. That's true. Not if we're family. You know, my brother does a lot of things I don't love. He acts me off sometimes. But if he calls me at 2 a.m. on a, well, anything but a Sunday morning, I'm probably going to answer. He's my brother. Because we're family. And I don't think I've ever told him, you know, if you don't... If you don't start slowing down when you're going on the highway or stop peeling out of mom's driveway, those things that just kind of kick you out of the family. It'd be stupid. 
You're pretty foolish. Just another verse, 1 Corinthians 10, 9 says, We do not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. If you look at Luke 5.30 and John 6.43, it was the scribes and the Pharisees that often grumbled against Jesus. They're the grumblers in Jesus' ministry. We believe what we say we believe. We believe the Bible is the basis for everything we do. You start acknowledging what among us is doctrinal and what is opinion. I've said that a couple different times in my year here. What is tradition or preference versus what is bound by the Word of God? Believe it or not, I got about three more pages of notes, but I'll, I'll cut everybody a little slack tonight. Share a couple more verses. 1 Thessalonians 5.12 We ask you, brothers, to acknowledge those who work diligently among you, who preside over you in the Lord, and give you instruction. 1 Timothy 2.8 I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without angering or quarreling. If you have a problem, I pray you'll listen to what the Bible says and how you should handle that problem. If you're engaged in a dispute over somebody, I hope we'll all be able to be reflective, as Jesus told us in Matthew 7, and that we'll be able to address our issues. And I pray in all things we'll remember the numerous commands against grumbling and sowing discord. As I look out in our audience, I don't see very many visitors. But if somehow I haven't just totally sold you on the idea of being a part of the church tonight, the Bible is clear on what it says about that as well. I've said it once already tonight, but it's to repent, confess the name of Christ, be baptized, and live faithfully as his disciple. If you're not a Christian, you want to be one tonight. If you are a Christian and you need to repent and you want to do so, now is that opportunity while we stand and while we sing.